ideas and insights provides a rich analytical framework for thinking about some of the most pressing issues of our times. Our goal is to promote a dialogue about the common good and forge a consensus on what we owe each other as fellow human beings. Engaging, enlightening, ideas and insights offers original and bold vistas for making sense of the world. Join us weekly here on this television station. I am Badrina Rao, your host for Ideas and Insights. Hello and welcome to Ideas and Insights. I am Badrinath Rao, your host for this program. I wish to talk to you today about David Hume, the 18th century Enlightenment philosopher, historian, and essayist, widely celebrated for his enduring contributions to philosophical empiricism, skepticism, and naturalism. Hume was born 311 years ago in Edinburgh in the United Kingdom. If you're wondering why we should concern ourselves with an old philosopher from an earlier epoch, born in a distant land, you're not alone. Contrary to our assumptions, however, David Hume was unusual in more senses than one. In his latest book, The Great Guide, what David Hume can teach us about being human and living well, published by Princeton University Press last year, eminent philosopher Dr. Julian Bagini offers an insightful account of Hume's philosophy and his persona. He argues that Hume was an original thinker who, unlike others of his ilk, did not allow his prodigious scholarship to obscure his humanism. Dr. Bajini posits that not only was Hume a first-rate philosopher, he was also an unparalleled exemplar of the good life. Far from being a stodgy sophist, Hume was a bon vivant. He loved company, good food, spirits, and friendly banter. According to Dr. Bajini, Hume, who enjoyed a formidable reputation as an intellectual colossus, routinely subverted received wisdom. Yet, his worldview was leavened by his profound sympathy for human imperfections, his belief in moral pluralism, and a preternatural tolerance for opposing views. In his perceptive analysis of Hume's opus, Dr. Bajini identifies several distinct dimensions of Hume's scholarship that solidify his stature as a preeminent Enlightenment philosopher. First, Hume was primarily interested in studying human nature. He forcefully argued that emotions not reason, govern human behavior. According to Hume, a moral philosophy 
that ignored our emotions is inherently flawed. He was skeptical about reason and believed that asking people to follow reason was impractical. Hume maintained that sympathy, not reason, is the foundation of morality. At a time when philosophers celebrated reason and held that it was the basis for morality, Hume's position was nothing short of revolutionary. Second, an astute observer of, observer of human behavior, Hume pointed out three common mistakes we make about human nature. We focus on humanity's bad side, not its positive aspects. We view people as selfish. We aggravate ourselves by comparing people with imaginary perfect beings, describing human perfection as a chimera. Hume advocated moral pluralism, the recognition that there are many things that make for a good life and that it is not possible for any one life or any one society to have them all in full. As an antidote to a judgmental outlook, Hume emphasized sympathy and kindness. Third, Hume was a pioneer of evolutionary psychology. He propounded ideas about human nature that modern psychology validated centuries later. For instance, Hume spoke about our tendency to prefer immediate rewards over future ones. Even if the future rewards are greater, a cognitive bias that psychologists refer to as hyperbolic discounting. Likewise, much before Darwin, he questioned the human-animal divide and held that humans were no different from animals. Though he did not know Buddhist thought, Hume postulated views on the self and the importance of moderation and sympathy that are strikingly similar to the teachings of the Buddha. Hume, thus, was a visionary, an intellectual clairvoyant who was ahead of his times. Fourth, Hume's philosophy was driven by practical concerns, not idle speculation. He wanted to study human nature through experiments to make our understanding of it scientific. Fifth, Hume viewed justice as an indispensable requirement for an orderly society. He favored the rule of law and demanded that justice should be transparent, consistent, and predictable. Sixth, consistent with his philosophy, Hume was compassionate, modest, and diplomatic in his dealings with people. He was wary of fanatics, and shunned controversies. Hume zealously guarded his autonomy and faced the vicissitudes of life with aplomb. His works, the sixth volume, The History of England, a treatise of human nature, an inquiry concerning human understanding, an inquiry concerning the principles of morals, 
and his many essays all bear testimony to his lifelong love of learning. Hume's scholarship has cast a huge influence on contemporary philosophy and cognitive science. Thinkers like Immanuel Kant, Albert Einstein, and Charles Darwin have acknowledged their intellectual debt to him. Yet, despite his rapier-sharp intellect, Hume was not devoid of intellectual blind spots. Though he opposed slavery, Hume believed that the non-white races were inferior to whites. An environmental determinist, he was convinced that the weather shapes national character. Hume was an ardent monarchist who offered qualified support for the American struggle for independence. Equally dismaying, he approved social hierarchies and viewed them as necessary for maintaining social order. Dr. Bajini thinks that regardless of these lacunae, Hume can teach us about being human and living well. He joins me now to discuss the life and ideas of David Hume. Welcome to Ideas and Insights, Dr. Bajini. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Thanks for inviting me, Badri. Let me begin with the title of your book. You call David Hume the great guide. We can learn something about him, about uh, life and living well from his uh, life and works. What do you think we can learn from David Hume? Well, I mean, I think there's a lot, and I think here in your introduction, you covered uh, a, a great deal. But I think, if you like, there, there's something perhaps more fundamental. And I think he shares this with Aristotle. I mean, Aristotle and Hume are my two uh, idols from the uh, Western philosophical tradition. And I think what both of them exemplify is this capacity to, you know, use our reason as best that we can, but not allow our understanding and our, our concepts and our philosophy to distort reality. So I think this is a very delicate balancing act because there are philosophers, I think, like Plato and Descartes, who are so enamored of reason that their philosophies really made the world seem more rational than it was. They, they pushed reason beyond its capabilities, if you like. But at the same time, perhaps most of humanity don't, don't put it enough, don't push reason enough. They don't use their reason enough. And it takes a very kind of skilled mind to kind of appreciate the, re the limits of reason, to push limit, the reason to its limits and no further. And all the while to be aware of the fact that if you're talking about human life and human nature, you have to attend to the way the world and people actually are and not get caught up in abstraction. So in a sense, that kind of approach to life, which is underpins any specific thing he said, is perhaps the most enduring and important legacy. And I think he shows us how, how far he can go with that. He also shows its limitations, as you've intimated. He didn't get everything right, um, but that is to be expected. And in fact, if you advocate that reason has its limits, human beings have their limits, then it's inevitable that human beings are going to get certain things wrong. And I think that Hume would have had the intellectual modesty to recognise that 
And you would hope that, you know, if he were alive today, he would happily be put straight on many of the things that he did get wrong. I will come to Hume's views on the limits of reason momentarily. Let's begin first with his philosophy. What do you think drew Hume to the study of human nature? Well, it's very difficult to know the sort of psychological motivations that, that people have. But I think that the point was, you're, you're, in a way, what's more interesting about your, your question to me, perhaps, is that that's what he was interested in. You know, one might say, what drew Hume to philosophy? What drew him to history? And that would be the natural thing to, to say. But actually, it was always human nature that interested him. He was trying to understand how human beings worked, the way we think, the way we understand the world, our relationship to nature, and so forth. And, and that was the real focus. And I think perhaps that gets forgotten because today, for example, you know, Hume is mainly read by philosophers, almost only read by philosophers, in fact, and they see him as a philosopher. But there's something a bit anachronistic about that label. A philosopher in the contemporary sense of the world has a very narrow range of interests compared to the people we call philosophers of the past. Uh, you know, I mean, Spinoza ground lenses, you know, Descartes did anatomy and sort of made all these great drawings. And so a lot of what Hume did, some of what Hume did, isn't really of interest to philosophers today. Uh, and his histories are a big example of that. In his lifetime, he was most famous for his history of England. And there were good reasons for not reading it today, because histories are the kind of things that do get superseded. You know, I mean, there's just much better scholarship now and so forth. But the point is, people kind of assume that that history had nothing to do with his philosophy, but it wasn't. It was for him part of his investigation into human nature, because history is a kind of a laboratory of human nature. You know, people didn't really have the idea of doing psychology experiments at that time. And to be honest, although we have that concept now, psychology experiments are very, very limited because they create very, very artificial environments. Um, for him, the, the great laboratory of human nature was, was history, how people behaved in different times, different places, different cultures. So that was what really drove him. Why he was interested in that, I, I don't know, but it's a, it's a fasc I think we're all fascinated by that in one way or another. Fair enough. Now, Hume was not particularly excited about using reason exclusively. He preferred experience instead. Why do you think he had grave reservations about reason? Yes, well, I think this is a difficult one because the word reason has different uses. Yes. And when we talk about Hume being skeptical about reason, he's really skeptical of like reason with, with a big capital R. Reason as it was used by philosophers we would now call rationalists like Descartes and Plato. Now, for, for these people, reason was the ultimate guide to life. It was like if you could just sit down and think about things, you could work out all the fun answers to all the fundamental questions from first principles. I mean, Spinoza is a fantastic example of this. Also, I think shows how it doesn't work in the end. You know, he thought you could just start from principles that are indubitably true, that there's something both cannot be and not be at the same time. And from this, work out the nature of the entire universe. Now, I think Hume was skeptical about that because the history of philosophy had shown that it, was, it didn't work. <laughs> in fact, if you follow pure reason, you often end up with, with paradoxes. In ancient Greece, like the old paradoxes of time and space, you know, reason can lead you to conclude both that time 
and space must be infinitely divisible and also that they cannot be infinitely divisible if you know paradoxes of Zeno and so forth you'll, sure. you'll, you'll be aware of that so I think you just recognize the fact that actually reason what reason does is it tells you about the relationship between concepts it tells you that one concept is in contradiction with another but it doesn't tell you about how the world works you have to look at it I mean cause and effect is a very good example here mm -hmm. right what does reason by itself tell you about cause and effect well I mean it tells you that by matter of definition a cause has an effect because that's what the words mean but does it tell you that everything in the world must have a cause does it tell you that everything that happens must be the effect of something else well no if you believe that you believe it on the basis of experience not on the basis of reason it's logically conceivable to live in a world where things just happen uncaused right we that's not the world we experience there's nothing logically incoherent about such a world so uh, this key point i think a real insight is this that what reason pure reason tells you is the relationship between concepts mm -hmm. if you want to know how the world is you have to look at the world there's no other way of doing it there's no shortcut doing it purely through concepts in his treatise of human nature hume rejects descartes rationalism instead he propounds a new method of doubt that he calls antecedent skepticism. As a new methodology for approaching philosophical issues, what is the significance of Hume's skepticism? Well, he, he, I think the skepticism he endorsed was kind of called mitigated skepticism, I believe. So mm -hmm. the, the antecedent skepticism is, is kind of, well, okay, there, there are various forms of skepticism. In, in history, and Hume was a skeptic of a kind. Uh, now, Descartes had like a methodological skepticism. In other words, he thought that in order to establish whether anything is true, you start by doubting everything, and you only accept those things which reason shows uh, cannot be doubted. And I think that enterprise failed. So, so in that kind of method of doubt everything, be skeptical about everything, and only then accept things that you cannot doubt, through reason doesn't work. And other forms of skepticism would tell you that you shouldn't believe anything you cannot establish to be certain. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't work either, because this distinction I talked about earlier between understanding concepts and understanding the world, you only get certainty about concepts. So one and one equals two is absolutely certainly true, because that's what those terms mean. It can't mean anything else. But what happens when you take one thing in the world and add it to another thing in the world? Well, there's nothing that tells you that what happens uh, logically. Mm -hmm. Sometimes what happens is they destroy each other. Sometimes they create a new third thing. Sometimes they create two things. It just depends. So the kind of skepticism uh, Hume advocated was one in which we, we do sort of like we, we don't we don't assent with any confidence to more than we have to. But we accept the fact that there are certain things we have to accept are true, not because reason tells us such, but because we cannot exist without them. And cause and effect is a, is a very good example. Hume argues in ways that people find remarkable when they haven't heard it before, that actually we don't have either any evidence that everything has a cause. We don't have evidence of cause and effect. We actually only experience one thing following from another. But without a belief in causation, 
our understanding of the world makes no the world makes no sense at all we have to believe in a power of causation and he accepts we have to do that now if he was a complete rigorous hard skeptic he would say because we can't prove cause and effect exists we should suspend belief in it mm -hmm. but you can't do that it's just impossible to live that way so that's the kind of he calls it mitigated skepticism because he recognizes that unless you mitigate your skepticism with some kind of practical element if you like it's impossible to live. Hume also rejected uh, inductive reasoning. Is that why uh, he found problems with cause-effect relationships? Well, I don't think he rejected inductive reasoning. He just pointed out that inductive reasoning can't guarantee uh -huh. uh, any truthful conclusion, which is true. So by inductive reasoning, we mean uh, reasoning for, from experience. So in, right. in induct, in, the problem, induction presents this a real problem for uh, philosophers, but also for us all. Because when we reason from experience, we're always doing something which is more than we're rationally entitled to. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is that we are taking experience, which is always limited, and always like from the past and the present, and we're generating general conclusions about it including things about the future and things that are unobserved. So, for example, if you take something that's really uncontroversial, that there is a force of gravity on the Earth, uh, we take that force of gravity to operate without exception at mm -hmm. all times and all places. But, of course, we haven't observed all times and all places, and we certainly haven't observed the future. So we don't know with rational certainty that, in fact, this is this is this is this this works. So, when we reason inductively, we're always going further than principles of pure logic allow us to do. But again, Hume was okay with that, actually. He wasn't saying, oh my God, let's give up belief in all this stuff. He's saying, we, we have to believe in this stuff, but let's just be honest and recognize that the basis of it is not a rational principle. It, it, he says that you know, custom and habit are the guide to life, not reason. Uh, custom and habit, that might sound strange. You mm -hmm. might just say, it doesn't just mean like social convention. What he means is that uh, by nature, we're creatures who base our understanding of the world on what we customarily observe, what we observe time and again. And, and it's not, it'd be nice to think that we had a rational justification for doing that. But he says in the strictest sense of the term rational, uh, we don't. Um, we, we use this kind of reasoning because it works, and, it, and that's the best justification you, you, we can have. <laughs> Let's now move to Hume's uh, emphasis on experience. Hume argued that experience is the source of all knowledge. He rejected the views of Plato and Descartes, who said that human beings have innate ideas. Instead, he uh, preferred and, and endorsed the views of uh, John Locke, the empiricist, and said that human beings uh, come into this world with a clean slate in a state of tabula rasa. Now, why do you think Hume was so very particular about experience as the foundation of knowledge? And what is its significance? Well, I think, I think, uh, I, Part of what I said before, I think, I think answers that question. But mm -hmm. it, it is important to point out that when, when we talk about philosophers, we, we tend to put them into like camps. We talk about empiricists and rationalists, and we put Locke together with Hume. Locke talked about the tabula rasa, the, bl the blank slate of the mind and everything. 
But I mean, clearly, actually, Hume didn't quite believe that. And I think that his, his views on causation are a good example of this, right? So mm-hmm. he argued that our belief in causation is not something we get from experience of the world. Now, if again, if that sounds crazy to you, just think about this for a minute. Think about whenever you think you see cause and effect in action. What are you actually seeing? You're seeing one thing followed by another. That's what you're seeing. You're not seeing any kind of like secret causal connection. You're not seeing any hidden powers. And even if you sort of drill down and you sort of look at it through a scientific lens, you're still just seeing a sequence of events. Now, we describe this as one thing causing another. We believe there is a a necessary connection between these things. Mm -hmm. Hume's point is that we don't actually get that from experience. We project it from our minds. Now, this is a controversial area in Hume's scholarship because some people say that Hume doesn't actually believe in causation as necessary connection. He believes that causation is simply regularity in the world, which we interpret as necessary connection. I don't think that makes sense. So it's a, <laughs> I'd be going to detail to, to say not. I think, but the main point is this: that I think that he does believe it's there. He just believes that our justification for believing it's mm-hmm. there is a kind of instinct, and that's where we depart from the complete blank slate view of the mind. Unless the mind came into the world, as it were, ready to project this necessary connection of causation onto the world, it couldn't really make sense of the world at all. It would just be seeing one thing after another. So from that point of view, he's not 100% basing things on experience. But generally speaking, yes, I think for reasons I've I've explained a bit already, um, it's experience which gets us to the bottom of things. I mean, we might talk about the self later, for example, but if you want to know what the self is, you can only really know that by paying very, very close attention to what it means to be a person, to what your experience of the world is. You can't just sort of like conclude that you're an immaterial soul or a pure animal body by by just rational principles. You, you have to look. And I think that, you know, he's been vindicated uh, because, you know, the great leaps and bounds in knowledge since his time between now have largely been on the basis of natural science and of observation. Um, what's remarkable about, about Hume is he got so many things right without actually doing the kind of really careful experiments that we associate with science today. Uh, but he, he, he was a very, very keen observer of, of, of the world and of, of human nature in particular. Dr. Bajini, in your book you point out that uh, Hume rejected uh, the role of chance in our lives. And he said what the vulgar called chance is just a secret and concealed cause. Why did Hume reject chance? Don't you think that things happen fortuitously in life? Isn't that everyday experience? Yeah, I mean, that, but that's a, that's a very good example. I think that the very fact he says that shows that he can't believe that there's no such thing as causation because of things like this. This is why I say the, the idea that Hume didn't believe in causation doesn't make sense because there's so many other arguments. Arguments he makes about you know, religion and the creation of the world and chance only make sense if you accept the fact that things happen in the world because of cause and effect. So um, I think, again, this is, this is a, a tricky one because by chance we could mean many different things. And I think all Hume was saying was that nothing happens in the world without some kind of cause. In that sense, there's no pure chance in the sense that something could happen or not and it could go either way 
if you if you the story of the universe unfolds in a certain way which means you get to a certain point where something has to happen next so that's what he means by nothing happens by chance but that, that's compatible with a, a more common sense view if you like of, of chance which is that you know uh, so we talk about luck for example mm -hmm. if i if i let's say i i swing uh i play i don't play golf let's say i play golf I'm not a brilliant golfer and I hit a hole in one, okay? <laughs> now we call that chance and there's a sense in which that's right. And But we mean it's chance because we're saying, given my skill and given my ability that I don't have the skill to control that uh, accurately. So it wasn't the case that the, the hole in one was a pure product of my genius as a golf player. So we say I was lucky and that's true. That's compatible with what Hume said. <laughs> but what he means is that you know, given the way you swung that golf ball on that occasion and the weight of the ball and the direction of the wind and the lie of the land and all that kind of stuff, there was only one thing that could have happened there, it going in the hole. So I think it's only in that sense that he says there's no such thing as, as chance. So he doesn't mean, why... it doesn't, by the way, it doesn't mean there's destiny here. It's not, it's not saying that everything happens because it's all, you know, preordained or written. It's just that things happen because of chains of cause and effect, and nothing escapes that chain of cause and effect. Is that why he also uh, rejects free will and choice, would you say? Well, again, I mean, he doesn't, I don't think he does reject free will. Um, uh -huh. Free will is one of the trickiest, trickiest uh, subjects <laughs> in philosophy, right? And he, what he rejects is, I think perhaps, I don't know whether it's what most people think of as free will. But there's a certain naive idea of free will, I, I'd call it naive, which is that to have free will means that we're capable of you know, escaping the chains of cause and effect. That, for example, you know, if I, if I, if I pick up this pen now, it's uh -huh. possible I had the power not to have done that. That's what free will means. There was a point at which I could, or could or could not have picked up that pen and I chose to. Now, what Hume is saying is that Actually, you know, given my history, given the state of the world, at that moment, I was only ever going to do one thing, which is to pick up the pen, right? Mm -hmm. So that power to kind of break the chain of cause and effect and do something else is not a power that we have. And if you think that's what free will is, we don't have it. But Hume is known as really the, the, the father of what we now call compatibilism, which is the view that although we don't have that kind of free will, we do have uh, the free will that matters. And the free will that matters is simply the ability to, to make our own choices uncoerced on the basis of our own thinking and so forth. It doesn't mean we're escaping our history and our environment. It just means that we're not being coerced or forced from the outside to do what we do. Uh, it's a very, very big thorny debate. And some people think that doesn't sound like free will to them. But Hume has a very, very good challenge to people, which is to say, well, you know, what would it really mean to have this kind of magic free will that mm -hmm. you think we should have? Don't we actually believe, don't we want it to be true that people do what they do because of their settled natures, right? So um, it's, it is because I am, you know, we rely on the fact that people have consistent views and beliefs for example that we you know we, we buy them chocolate instead of uh, uh whatever else fruit because we know they like chocolate we know they don't like fruit now mm -hmm. if we just had the power to just 
do whatever you wanted to do, we wouldn't be able to predict anyone's behavior. <laughs> we wouldn't be able to know what they're going to do. So he's saying that actually the way we operate in life assumes that people have a fairly stable nature, assumes that there are causes for their actions and they're not just random. So he's saying that actually we over this, this idea that free will requires us to be able to just make choices that have nothing to do with our, our history and our past and to break free of the chain of cause and effect it's not only impossible, it's not even desirable. Let's now move to Hume's ideas on religion. You point out in your book that Hume was opposed to miracles and superstition. But you also say that he spoke about miracles with a forked tongue. Why was that? Do you think he was just being pragmatic? Yeah, no, it's a very good question. I mean, Hume lived in an interesting time. I mean. There are places in the world, even today, mm -hmm. where if you say the wrong things about religion, you could get killed. You yeah. know, pe and people are being killed and executed uh, for saying the wrong things about religion in certain situations. Now, Hume was never under that serious threat. Let's be clear about that. But you know, it wasn't that long before him that you could be. Uh, yeah, the, the last person to be uh, killed for, for being a witch, I believe, in in, in Scotland was was only shortly before Hume's own life. Mm -hmm. And um, the, the, the church did have a certain degree of power still. So although he wasn't in grave danger of his life, it had been very difficult for him to have spoken out too forcefully against religion. So in his writings on religion, he, he rather carefully um, played his hand very, very subtly. And he often said things like, you know, look, um, you can believe by faith these things. And in fact, that's how you should believe. So, you know, you believe by faith that there are miracles. But believing that by faith there are miracles, you've got to accept the fact that from a rational point of view, miracles are impossible. So that's the, that's the forked tongue. So it gives you these arguments why it's completely unreasonable to believe in miracles, that all of evidence suggests that miracles never occur. And that therefore, if you're going to base your beliefs on, on reason and evidence, there are no miracles. But then he hand, but he says, yeah, but of course, you know, faith is something which doesn't rely on evidence. It relies on something else. So you, you can still believe in miracles on the basis of that faith. And that allowed him to, in a way, play to different audiences. So uh, the audiences that were themselves skeptical of religion could read what he was saying and understand that he was really saying miracles didn't exist. He had that fig leaf of piety for people who are looking for reasons to um, catch him out. And similarly, for people who are perhaps uncertain, he could introduce that doubt into their minds and, and, and force people to accept the fact that if you are going to believe in miracles, it can't be on the basis of evidence. And his argument of that is quite simple, really, which is that uh, the evidence for any given miracle is always much, much weaker than the evidence against, because the evidence against miracles is the fact that we live in a universe of cause and effect, where things don't happen without cause. And the evidence for miracles is only ever the testimony of a small number of people. And we know that that testimony can be wrong, not just because people lie, but because people can be mistaken. People can, can, can get things wrong. Hume was not a deist. He did not subscribe to intelligent design. He was opposed to fanaticism. Yet, he favored an institutionalized church as a foil against fanaticism. He did not want to call himself an atheist, 
you describe him as a metaphysical agnostic. What do we make of Hume's religious convictions? Yes, I think this is very interesting because I think today a lot of a lot of atheists and secular humanists take Hume to be a kind of hero, uh -huh. and they often sort of quote him and for their arguments. And I, I think that there's a very interesting. I always go back to when I think about this to what something Bertrand Russell once said. Bertrand Russell once said that in the strict sense of the term, he should be called an agnostic because he didn't believe you could prove that God didn't exist. So in that sense, you know, there was no certainty about it. But he said it would be a bit misleading to call me an agnostic because it would make it sound mm -hmm. as though I kind of think, oh, maybe, maybe not. In fact, he believed, you know, the possibility of God existing was so remote it wasn't worth thinking about. So in that sense, he was better called an atheist. Now, in the same kind of way, Hume apparently was uh, shocked by the fact that when he went to France for the second time in his life, later in his mm -hmm. life, that there were so many people who openly said they were atheists. And I think we have to take these accounts seriously. I think he did, he did believe that there was something uh, excessive in declaring that God didn't exist in this absolute way. But it's also very, very clear that he, he had no reason at all to believe that, that God existed and lived his life as though he didn't. But as you say, at the same time for him, I think, and this is again, a, a, I think a wonderful lesson for us, in a sense, with issues like this, it doesn't matter so much which side you come down on. It's just that whatever side you come down on, you should do so with the appropriate intellectual modesty and fundamental humanity. And so therefore he had no problem at all with religious believers who were humane and dog non-dogmatic people. In fact, he had great friends. One friend of his was a Clergyman. A, a, a clergyman and at one point there was even some suggestion of them sharing a house together you know and he he when he wrote his early masterpiece in france he he wrote it next to a a, a jesuit monastery and he used to use their library and chat with them and, and he enjoyed that very much mm -hmm. so you know from, from from hume's point of view he, he he really has nothing at all to do with certain very aggressive forms of atheism which see religion as the root of all evil and ha have a dogmatic certainty that God doesn't exist. But at the same time, I think, you know, <laughs> he didn't believe in God. It's as simple as that. And he didn't see any reason to think that. He, he wasn't suspended in sort of 50-50 doubt about it. Let me ask you one last question on Hume's views concerning religion before we move on. Be it his nuanced views on miracles, you've talked about that, or the delayed publication of his controversial essays of suicide, of the immorality of the soul, one notices that he had a pragmatic approach to polemical issues. And you point out in your book that he took great pains to cloak his work in a veil of piety. So it seems to me that Hume was more pragmatic uh, and was trying to play, be safe than sorry. Would you agree? Yeah, I, again, I think this is a very, very interesting thing because I think that some people really like, they like their martyrs, right? So uh -huh. Socrates is the great martyr, the guy who would rather sort of take his hemlock than, mm -hmm. than flee because he would, he would die for truth. Um, Aristotle, who I think was a more down-to-earth philosopher than, than uh, Socrates, 
at one point in his life, he faced the possibility of danger and he fled. He fled and he fled and he lived several years more. And was there really anything to be gained by staying and dying in that way? And I think, you know, Hume's, this, is, this might sound sort of, um, I think some people think this sounds weak-willed or unprincipled, but, you know, what is it, what is it worth dying for? It's worth dying for many things, but is it worth dying for your particular view of the way the universe works and for what is truth when that, you know, without mm -hmm. that having any direct practical concern? It's worth dying to save people. It's worth dying to keep people alive. Is it worth dying for that? And similarly, is it worth making life so difficult for yourself that you can't work, you can't write, you can't publish? And I think I think Hume's right. You know, if if Hume had had been uh, such a controversialist that he had been basically driven underground, driven out of polite society, people wouldn't publish him. He wouldn't have been able to have said the things that he had said, and we perhaps wouldn't even have had his work. So I think that kind of compromise, it's not romantic. And I think this is one another reason why Hume perhaps isn't as well known as some other philosophers. We, we like these romantic philosophers, the, the <laughs> tortured ones, yeah? Kierkegaard, you know, the tortured soul, and, and, and Nietzsche, who, who died insane, although the insanity had nothing to do with his philosophy. It was just <laughs> he caught syphilis. And Socrates, who died. We really like that. We, it, it sort of speaks to our kind of heroic uh, sense. But, you know, heroism has its time and its place. And I don't see, Aristotle said of courage that courage, there is always what he calls the mean. If you're not courageous enough, you're a coward. If you're too courageous, you're rash. And I think when it comes to kind of being brave about expressing your views, if they're gonna give you condemnation, you must pick your moments. And there was no reason to be more courageous than he needed to be. But also the intellectual respectability about that goes back to this idea that Hume was never dogmatic. So, so why should he, as it were, kind of insist on his views in a strong and dogmatic way when he doesn't have to, given that dogmatism is always to be opposed? So in that sense, his moderation about the way he expressed his views wasn't just pragmatism. It was also reflecting his view that it, it's, it's never a good idea to, to be so dogmatic and forceful in expressing your views. Aside from not being dogmatic, Hume was also eminently practical in his philosophical inquiries. He had no use for idle speculation. Uh, what is the significance of this practical approach that Hume espoused throughout his uh, life as a philosopher? Well, again, I think it just reminds us that if we're going to try and think about human nature, how society should be ordered, the nature, whatever it, whatever it is, mm -hmm. you know, we've got to have some basis for what we're thinking about, what we're saying, and that basis can't be words and concepts. You know, we use words and concepts to frame ideas, to express them. But we don't base our worldview on words and concepts. It's got to be based on, on observation and, and, and what we see. And I think it's as simple as that, really. For a man of such extraordinary ability to observe human nature, human behavior, and so on, Hume held a whole slew of uh, ideas that were absurd. 
He believed the white race was superior to non-white races. He believed in environmental determinism. He believed in patriarchy. He believed in monarchy. And he believed that hierarchies are good for social order. This sounds anomalous, does it not? It, 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 does, it, it doesn't, it doesn't. You have to take all those things, I think, one by one, in a way, to, mm -hmm. to understand them. Um, so, I mean, first of all, uh, in recent years, his views on race have become particularly yes, salient indeed. as people are looking at that, right? Now, on the one hand, one doesn't want to defend him too much. On the other hand, one, doesn't, one has to put it in its context. That the his racism was expressed in one footnote to an essay, <laughs> in which he said, "It begins. I am apt to suspect." Right. So now remember, his essays were kind of like journalism of today. It was understood that in an essay, um, you know, it comes from the French. They're tempt. You're trying out ideas. So uh -huh. you know, it's not necessarily a kind of final view. And he expressed the view that you know he was apt to suspect based on what he had seen about different cultures around the world, that as he put it, you know, the white race was superior to the others on the basis that, as far as he could see, um, it was only the white races which had achieved the very pinnacle of civilization and everyone else was, was behind. Now, of course, this is ridiculous. And he did have contemporaries who could see that as ridiculous. So it wasn't like it was impossible to see that as ridiculous at the time. But one's got to remember that it was very, very few people who thought that was ridiculous in his time. Most people thought it was completely true. And most people wouldn't have said, I'm apt to suspect. They would have said, this is just factually the case, right? Now, he was still wrong. It's, it's disappointing that he was wrong, but it shouldn't surprise us that he was wrong about some things because first of all, no one is right about everything. And secondly, people are the product of their times. Mm -hmm. You cannot escape that. And I think that when people sort of like think that Hume is beyond the pale because of that remark, I think they, have, they are really underestimating the extent to which we are all products of our time. And I think there's a kind of arrogance in that, actually. It's like when people um, ask, look at the way a lot of ordinary German people behaved during the era of the Third Reich. And they say with confidence, I would never have done that. You know, I would have been one of the people hiding the Jews, resisting, whatever. People don't know that. They don't know that. Um, they imagine themselves as they are now, with all the beliefs they have, with the knowledge of the Holocaust and all those things, transplanted into that time. And of course, if that happened, they perhaps would be right. Although who knows, they may become cowardly. You don't know what it would be like for someone like you to have grown up for these things to have happened gradually around you. So I think there's a real, there's an arrogance in becoming self-righteous about judging people from another time and culture when you just, when we are all the products of those things. Now, we, having said that, he did get that wrong and I think we should say that. And I think it's important uh -huh. to recognize that because no one should be an intellectual idol beyond reproach. In a way, I mean, it's not good that he believed it but it's good that we can identify very clear mistakes in him to prevent us becoming his, his acolytes. You know, people like him are not to be worshipped. I think the, the other thing I would say about that, though, is that you should look not so much at the particular view, but his general approach. Hume's general approach was to base his uh, beliefs on evidence and so forth. Now, in this case, he didn't have enough evidence. He interpreted it badly. He made a mistake. There is no doubt at all that if you were following Hume's style of philosophy today, 
there is no way you would be a racist. You just, just, you simply wouldn't because there is no evidential reason at all to think people are superior or inferior based on, on their genetic heritage. Now you talked about a number of other things as well. He is wrong about now. A lot of those other things are, we could broadly turn them a kind of conservatism. And here, again, I'm quite sympathetic actually because. Um, the point about conservatism as a kind of a, a philosophy is the conservative view is that when it comes to reforming society, you should be very, very wary about taking your blueprint to be something established by reason, you know, uh, detached from experience and that cultures evolve in a certain way and they have a kind of sense which may not make much sense if you think about it too logically. And a lot of human life is like that, you know. If you were to ask, for example, you know, if you think about the way in which we conduct you know, relationships and monogamy and all these kind of things, it's not really they're logical. It's just that these are the kind of forms of life which actually have their merits and we perhaps abandon them at our peril, perhaps. Now, I think that, and in a way, so that connects with his general sort of scepticism about allowing our views of the world to be guided by a kind of a reason divorced from experience. He thought there's a wisdom of experience. Now, I think he, in the political realm and the social world, he gave that too much weight. And this is the classic mistake of conservatism, I think. Mm -hmm. Because conservatism that is credible can never be the view that society has got everything right and it should never change. Uh, obviously, society should be capable of evolution and change and reform. But it tells us to be suspicious of people who come along and say, because that looks illogical, we should tear it up. But I do think when it came to politics, he, he erred too much on the side of conservatism. And again, it wasn't because he, he thought, you know, he, he had divided views on this. So when it comes to established religion, for example, you know, he, he was against religion. He thought as, from a practical point of view, it was better to have an established church because without an established church, you kind of have a free market of religion and that encourages these religions to kind of outcompete each other for attractiveness and so forth. And it creates people <laughs> that would be worse. It would create more kind of superstition uh, and religious fervor. So we had like practical reasons for wanting to um, have an established church, which had nothing to do with him approving of it. And I think it's, things like monarchy were perhaps quite similar. I think he was of the view, as a lot of people, a remarkable number of people still are today in the United Kingdom. Mm. But remember, even today, most people approve of the monarchy, right? Now that might seem incredible, but they approve of the monarchy because they think that the monarchy is a tried and tested system which gives a certain amount of stability. And that no matter how illogical it seems, if you were to abolish it, the fear is that what would come in its place would be even worse. So th these were a lot of the reasons why he approved of, of, of these things. When it came to his view of women, he wasn't an outrageous misogynist by the standards of his time. But he, he did inherit certain views about, uh, I think, women having a sort of a, a different kind of intelligence, shall we say, a tenderer <laughs> minds and so forth. And, and yeah, that, and that's another thing he, he just got wrong, frankly. All right, let's move on to something else that you point out in the book, which I find really interesting. You state in your book that uh, David Hume articulated ideas that were strikingly similar to those of Confucius and the Buddha. Like Confucius, who favored harmony in society, 
Hume was uh, interested in uh, maintaining social order. Like Confucius, he believed in hierarchies. Like the Buddha, uh, Hume spoke about the centrality of moderation. He spoke about sympathy. And in fact, he went so far as to say that sympathy, not reason, must be the basis for morality. Now, I don't get the impression from your book that Hume had read these uh, philosophers. Did he come to these uh, conclusions independently? I think that's true. I think the, the, the parallels with Confucius are perhaps not as strong. And with the Buddha, his strongest parallel is with his conception of the self. Mm -hmm. um, you know, viewers who are familiar with the Buddhist view of the self, sometimes called the no-self view, perhaps more accurately, not-self view, know that the Buddhist view of the self is that there isn't a thing called the self, that the self is a, like a collection, and it's an ordered collection of thoughts and experiences, sensations Correct. and emotions. And Hume's view was basically pretty much identical. And although there is an intriguing possibility he might have heard about these views, there is no direct evidence that he did. The story, which is well worth telling, Alison Gopnik tells this story in a beautiful essay um, in quite a lot of detail, is that, of course, as I said before, he went to this monastery, he, went, he lived very close to this monastery in La Fleche in, in uh -huh. France. And Jesuits at that time were traveling to, to India in particular in the Far East, and some of them had, one of them had written a whole book describing the kind of, you know, the philosophy there and the ideas of the self. This manuscript was taken back to the monastery. It was never published, of course, because the Catholic Church didn't want this kind of heretical stuff published, but in this kind of way that happened in that time, these manuscripts were circulated amongst the, the members of the, the Jesuits themselves and studied. So there is an intriguing possibility that he could have heard about these ideas while he was there. Mm -hmm. um, but it, the evidence, as I say, is purely circumstantial. He never once mentions this. He doesn't mention it in correspondence. You know, he, we've got quite a lot of Hume's letters. He never says something like, I had some fascinating conversation with the Jesuits about, um, you know, he, he never said anything about that. So it seems to be honest that he came up with it independently. But that is not as remarkable as you might think, because if, like me, you think this is the right view of the self, that's the first thing. And secondly, that in order to know it's the right thing, all you have to do is to attend very carefully to your own experience. It should be no surprise that the same view emerges independently in more than one place. I mean, it's, it's true and it can be observed. So acute observers of human nature are going to spot it independently in different times and places. We are almost uh, out of time, Dr. Bajini, but let me ask you one final question. All things considered, David Hume was a remarkable personality. He had a lot to offer to humankind. If you had to summarize for the benefit of our viewers, a handful of insights that we should take away from his life and works, what would they be? Well, okay, maybe there's this phrase he uses, in, in, and I'll, I will rephrase it because he uses the gendered language of, of a man. But he says, you know, uh, I'm going to change it slightly. He says, you know, be a philosopher, but amidst all your philosophy, be a human being. And I think that's the real essence of it. For him, it was really important that we didn't just sort of become philosophers who kind of forget. We're flesh and blood people 
social animals, creatures of the world who have time for, you know, company, backgammon, uh, food and drink, all, all these kind of things. And I, th and I think that's the, 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 what perhaps is the, the fundamental impulse which makes him so, so worth listening. He, he never lost sight that we are flesh and blood human beings, no matter how high-minded our reasoning might be. Dr. Bajimi, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure talking to you. Good night. Thank you, Bajri. It was a pleasure for me too. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Ideas and Insights. Thanks for joining us today. Next week, we will discuss why we act, turning bystanders into moral rebels, a new book published by Harvard University Press in 2020. In this book, the author, Dr. Katherine Sanderson, an eminent social psychologist, examines why most people fail to act when they witness bad behavior, be it sexual harassment, corruption, or bullying. Our first instinct is to avert our gaze or be a bystander. Why do we fail to act? Drawing on rich insights from psychology and neuroscience, Dr. Sanderson explains our inaction and provides insights about what it takes to be a moral rebel and stand up to bad behavior. Join us next week for an exciting discussion with Professor Catherine Sanderson. Until then, I am Badrinath Rao. Stay safe and goodbye.